So Hebrews 9.16 says, Where there's a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Read that in the NIV. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. So the blood that seals the covenant also testifies to the death of the one whose assets are released through the covenant. Another word for covenant here is testimony. Through Jesus' blood, the power of his testimony, which we call the gospel, is made sure. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is his testimony. It's also his last will and testament. It reveals what he released through his death. His blood seals it. His blood authorizes it. His blood testifies that the one who's releasing the terms and conditions of the covenant has died so that the last will and testament of Jesus is in effect. The inheritance of his sons and daughters is fully authorized and released through the blood that seals the covenant and authorizes it and empowers it. The power of this testimony is released by those who have entered into his death and laid down their own life to embrace his. In Romans 6, verse 5, it says, If we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So if you've died in Christ, if you've been resurrected in Christ, sin and death no longer have authority over you. Sickness no longer has authority over you. I'm not condemning Christians who get sick. I'm just saying legally, officially, sin, sickness, and disease, and death have no power over you if you're in Christ. We're all in that battle of bringing that to reality in our lives. But faith says when Jesus died, it was finished. He said it's over. The price has been paid for all that was lost through the fall of man to be restored. We are in the times of restoration of all things. Verse 7 says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
In Romans 8, it tells us that if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, it will also bring life, it will quicken or bring life to our mortal bodies, to our physical bodies. So it's not just for us spiritually, it's for our physical bodies. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. If we're in him and his spirit is in us. We are his sons and daughters, and we're entitled to what he paid for. That's what faith declares in and through us. So if you died with Christ, you no longer live. You're dead. He lives through you. Your body is his vessel. You gave up your rights. All you have belongs to him. You don't have rights anymore. You live for him. You've given up your right to be offended. You live to carry out his will and testament. What is his will? It's for you to carry the power of his life, of his presence, and of his nature. He wants to bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2.10 says, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So scripture says, as he is, so are we in this world. So because we've entered into his death his, and the power of his res resurrection life, we now demonstrate his life and his nature to the world around us. So what is his will? It's not just personal, it's also corporate. And let's go to John 17, where he says, Jesus says in his, what's often referred to as his high priestly prayer, I do not pray for these alone, John 17, 20. He's talking about his disciples. I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That includes us. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So we, we need to know the world isn't going to believe just because we're powerful or bold or full of love, even though we need to be all of that. That's not what causes the world to believe that Jesus is alive. The world will believe because we're one. 
Something happened to me early in my walk when I had an encounter with the Lord one night and, and he showed me his bride. And, and it was one of the more powerful encounters that I've had in my 35 years of walking with the Lord. And I, and I can't really explain it, but when you have an encounter like that, it shifts things inside of you. And it shifted things inside of me. And from then on, there's a number of things that I could never buy into again. One of them is a gloom and doom view of the future. I saw the bride and I, saw, and I, and I recognized that none of us are big enough to screw up his plan. He's well able to finish what he starts. And he's going to have his glorious bride. No matter how, how many segments of the church are prophesying gloom and doom, and we've messed it all up, Jesus is going to have his bride, and, and she's going to be like him, full of glory. It, 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 I, I shook for hours after that, just from the glory of her presence, the glory of his presence that was on her. And another thing that shifted inside of me is the thought that Jesus is coming back for a harem of many different denominations and groups of people who can't get along with each other. And yet somehow we all want to go to the same place. He's coming back for a bride, one spotless bride without spot or wrinkle that love each other, not that are divided against each other. How is he going to accomplish all that? I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, there is one bride now. It's Jesus' wife, and he's pretty personal about her. He's pretty committed to her. And so ever since then, I have... I've, I've had fear and trembling in my heart when it comes to speaking against her. That's his wife. I honor her. I love her. He called me a friend of the bridegroom. That's what he called John the Baptist. I heard the Lord call me a friend of the bridegroom. That means I have an assignment to help prepare the bride. That means that if I expect him to entrust the care of the bride and the preparation of the bride to me, that he doesn't want me to criticize her, he doesn't want me to condemn and judge her, he wants me to speak to her purpose and destiny and to prepare her for her. So in, in a certain sense, if you go back to uh, the story of Eliezer, which was Abraham's servant who went after a bride for Isaac, his son. That's the role that the friend of the bridegroom has, is to, is to go after the bride and, and identify who she is, and then on the way back to meet with the bridegroom to prepare her by communicating to her what is waiting for her and helping her prepare her heart. It doesn't tell the name of the servant in that chapter, but several chapters before it does. 
and his name is Eliezer, and Eliezer means Almighty Helper. It's a powerful picture of the Holy Spirit, but it's also a picture of those that the Lord enlists to help prepare the bride for the bridegroom. And I'm here to tell you there's only one bride, and and she's not going to have a spot or wrinkle or any such thing because he is washing and cleansing her and purifying her and, and, and removing the spots and wrinkles from her. I consider it the greatest honor of my life that, that he chose me to help prepare the bride for him. I can't think of a higher honor. What does it look like for us to love each other? In spite of differences and opinions? Differences of doctrine? You can have the perfect doctrine, it doesn't mean much if we can't love each other. All your doctrines fall apart without a demonstration of what it looks like for us to be one. The biggest complaint of the world against the church is our division. Some of you didn't have the benefit of growing up in a large family or of having multiple kids in your family uh, once you had kids of your own. But it used to frustrate me to no end when I was a kid growing up. If we'd get into a spat that mom and dad typically didn't listen to the issue. The issue was secondary. The fact that we were in a spat was primary. Are you hearing me? Same way with our kids. If they would get in a fight with each other, should I tell a story? Um, we have two daughters, and uh, when they were teenagers, uh, I, I don't know this this hostility came up between them where they would get they would fight with each other, and uh, and it was usually about clothes or some silly thing like that, and uh, and so. They would, they would come to Amanda or, or myself and, and want us to take one side against the other because each of them was convinced they were right. And our issue was, you guys need to learn to work out your stuff and get along with each other. And we had finally got to a place where we had a house that was big enough that they each had their own bedroom. And uh, they really enjoyed that. And so I kind of got tired of, of the, the spats at one point, and I felt the Lord really gave me some wisdom. And I said, uh, if you guys get in another fight like this, you guys are moving in together until you learn to love each other. Well, that's not going to happen. I said, okay, good. I hope not. About a week later, it did. I said, okay, decide which room you're going to move in because you're going to be in together until you learn to love each other. And, and then I was the enemy, you know. <laughs> you know how that works. They were so mad at me. And uh, 
But they moved in together into the biggest room, and they were together for, what, a year? A year and a half. That's how long it took them to learn to love each other. And when they did, it, it was like the, the wall of division between them disappeared. And they've been best friends ever since. What's it going to take for Jesus' kids to learn to love each other? What's he going to have to do to get us to love each other? Well, I know my opinion is right, you know, and so I shouldn't have to make peace with somebody that I know is wrong, right? Well, maybe they just see things through a different set of eyes that God gave them. You know, the four, I, I like to use this analogy because it's so powerful. The four gospel writers wrote the gospel through four, from four different perspectives. And if you have a legalistic mind, you'd say, well, three of them are wrong and one of them's right. No, they all were given the freedom and the grace to tell the story through their lens, through what they remembered, through what the Holy Spirit highlighted to them. And it gives us a very powerful, four different aspects of a very powerful story that's not full of contradictions. They actually complement each other because of how they each emphasize different things. We have a pretty amazing opportunity here with people from many different religious and non-religious cultures in this body. We have ex-Amish and non-Amish. We have Mennonites and Calvinists in your background. Now, those two can never get together, right? Because the Armenians, which is where the Amish and Mennonites come from, they're lost every time they have a bad thought, right? If Jesus comes back and you've got an unconfessed sin in your life, you're going to hell, right? And the Calvinists, on the other hand, once saved, always saved, no matter what I do, once I'm saved, you know, I'm good. I'm eternally secure. And so that there's, a, there's a bridge to build right there between two very powerful trains of thought. Might I suggest to you that both of those have half a truth. And if they ever got together, they'd change the world. There are two edges to one sword. One without the other is incomplete. My wife and I are a picture of that. She's the South Pole and I'm the North Pole. I used to say we, we used to have a bipolar relationship. <laughs> and then the Lord took us down to the equator, gave us an assignment down in the rainforest of Peru by the equator, and we began to overlap, and we began to meet in the middle, and it's been a powerful story ever since. Because on the personality scale, we are so, we're just, just about polar opposites. And yet, she's got strengths I don't have. I've got strengths she doesn't have. And when we team together, it's amazing. And she sees the world through one set of eyes. I see the world through a whole different set of eyes. And as long as I insist my viewpoint is right and hers is wrong, we're going to be at odds with each other as long, and, the, and vice versa. 
But when we learn to value each other's perspective and what each other brings to the table, it's amazing. It's amazing. She's, she's got a powerful voice. She's got a powerful perspective. And, and I'm going to honor it, even though it's been a long, dusty trail getting to the place where I can truly do that from my heart. But, but, but God is, is making her so powerful because she has a platform and she has a voice. And she's got a perspective I don't have. So we have charismatics and evangelicals. There's another great divide. Our view of the Holy Spirit and the, and, and the experience that he brings us into in life. And what does that mean? And all these different flavors and brands of what the Holy Spirit brings into our life. Uh, why don't we just let the Holy Spirit be God and let him bring into our life what he wants to bring and learn from each other's perspective? Because I think all of us have been religious when it comes to the Holy Spirit. All of us have put, us, put him into boxes that he's way too big for. I mean, just about every class that I have ever heard teach on the Holy Spirit has, has given him these very narrow boundaries that he operates within, right? I think he's getting ready to blow all those boundaries off away and show us that he's much bigger than we thought he was. You know, where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom, which I think is the right interpretation of that verse. Where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. He's God. He's the administrator of everything the Father has on earth. And so I think he wants to teach us how amazing he is, how big he is, how powerful he is, how unlimited his ability to administrate the kingdom of heaven on earth is. We have mystics in the, in, in, that are, maybe they're not a part of the body of Christ, but they need to be. Because a lot of times mystics have found more acceptance in the New Age movement than they have in the church. And we need them as a part of the body. Truth be known, I'm probably one of them. I, I, I started experiencing God, not just believing in God intellectually, from the time I was a baby Christian. And, and for years I was afraid to talk about my experiences because people already thought I was weird. My experiences are what changed my life. My experiences with God is what brought a depth to what I believe. I'm a, I'm a very strong believer in the Word of God. You'll never get me to budge away from, from my honor and reverence for, the, for Scripture and, and for what I believe about what God reveals to us through His written Word. You know, Jesus said it is written. That was, that was the highest authority that He could bring to the situation when He was being tempted. And so I have such honor and respect for the written word of God. But if all it is is an intellectual faith, then you need to experience some things to bring some depth to it. I think the best way to describe the river is not by standing on the banks and looking at it. It's by being in the middle of it and describing it from a whole different perspective. It feels like this. It acts like this. And, 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 and that's the way the things of the Spirit are. 
that we need to be, be open to experience what the Holy Spirit brings into our life. Amen? I'm not about elevating experience above Scripture, but I'm saying that a lot of times, um, if we don't have the experience, we're bringing a, an intellectual understanding to something that God wants to open up to us because of what we experience. And you read that all the way through the book of Acts. That scripture was actually illuminated by the encounters that the apostles had with the word of, with the, the Holy Spirit. So we need mystics in the body. We have creative or artist types who have found more acceptance in the homosexual community than in the church. Sad to say. We need them in the body. They are another. Uh, expression of what God, of who God is, and how He wants to reveal Himself. And I'm I'm going to encourage all of those things to come alive, and not to be not for any one of them to be center stage, but for them all to be honored and valued and brought together into one body, so that every aspect of who Jesus is can be fu- fully experienced in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 says he uh, talks about the church, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That means every aspect of who Jesus is is to be fully expressed in the church. Jesus' body needs all of these and more. So any truth that is overemphasized to the exclusion of other truths brings division. And that's, that's the fallacy of denominationalism and the divisions that even a lot of non-denominations, which is probably, many of those are just another denomination. They're a non-denomination. Is, is that they have overemphasized their revelation. And, and I've, I've seen this so much in people coming out of a religious background that whatever the revelation is that begins to break them free, they get on a pony and ride that thing into the ground. Rather than realize, look, that's only the first bite off of an endless banqueting table that God has for you. There's more, there's more, there's more, and there will always be more that he wants to reveal to you, that he wants you to experience. That he, don't take the first thing that you get a hold of and think you got the whole deal now because you don't. There's much more to be had. There's much more to be experienced. But a truth that's overemphasized to the exclusion of others not only brings, it brings division, and it's what Scripture calls heresy. Heresy is not some crazy lie. Heresy is a twisted truth or an overemphasized truth that brings division to the body of Christ. So we need all of these elements as part of the body, not trying to function as its own body. So in our Christian faith, too often we give mental assent to something, but we don't activate what we say, it, uh, what we, say we believe. And today I'm going, to act, I'm going to ask you to activate your confession. How many of you are ready to activate your love for one another? Get everybody's hands up before I tell you what it is. 
That's how to do it, right? So Jesus demonstrated how that we show love and commit to serve each other. Okay, let's go to John 13. John 13, 1. And this, this verse tears me up every time I read it. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved, G- he loved Judas, knowing he would betray him. He served him communion. He washed his feet. He loved him to the end. He didn't stop when he figured out that Judas was going to betray him. He continued to love him to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, knowing that he was God, you know, that entitles him to a certain position, right? Knowing who he was, he came from God, he was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Knowing who he was, knowing that he was God, took a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. You know, the ones that wanted to call fire down from heaven, the ones that got into a fight about who was the biggest in the kingdom, the ones who had screwed up so many times, yet he washed their feet. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing now you do not understand, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Here's the Master. Here's the Son of God, the Messiah, the one they had followed for three and a half years. And he wants to wash Peter's feet. Peter's like, That's too much. I can't let you do that. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Then Peter said, Lord, in that case, not my feet only, but also my hands and my, and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. 
More assuredly, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's called us to a life of serving each other. You know the ones that we really don't want to serve? They're probably, that's probably the ones that are the most important for us to serve. Because that's where we're going to learn the nature of Christ who washed the feet of his betrayer. If we're going to demonstrate to the world who Jesus is, we need to tear down division whenever we find it. You can't make other people tear down their wall, but you can tear down yours. Usually there's two walls. There's the one we built and the one they built. We can only tear down ours. We can't tear down theirs. But a lot of times when we tear ours down, theirs ends up caving in. Somebody's got to lead the way. Being a leader means going first. Amen? So this morning, we're going to wash each other's feet. Is that okay? And, and, and if you're totally freaked out by that, you don't have to participate. But I'm going to invite you to. I want you to pray. And I want you just to respond to the Lord. If he puts on your heart that you need to wash somebody's feet, then I want you to go to that person and be able to do that. And you'll find that as you do, you're going to partake of an aspect of Jesus' nature. It's very precious and very powerful. And then we're going to have communion together. Father, I thank you for the example that Jesus gave us. Jesus, thank you for teaching us how to love each other. And that love is more than a feeling. It's more than a doctrine. It's more than words. Jesus, this morning we ask that you would remove the spots and the wrinkles from your bride. Not only would you make us one, but that you would use us as a catalyst to tear down division in the body of Christ. That we would be able to love people that we may completely disagree with that have some different perspectives than we do. For people that we know we've had issues with. I said you would teach us to love one another in a very real and tangible way. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, I've asked you.